Hi everyone. You probably don't recognize my voice, but my name's Christopher, and Peter, who ran the We Were Raised by Wolves podcast that you're listening to right now, was a dear friend of mine. He'd mentioned this podcast many times, and he was so thrilled so many of you were enjoying it so much. He was always trying to improve it with each episode, and I think that showed. Unfortunately, he was never able to post the final episode, which I know was a huge disappointment to him and all of you out there. So, over the holidays, I took it upon myself to piece together and update the audio for that final episode. So those of you who have been waiting, too long I'm sure, can finally get closure on season one of what was a very unique and fantastic television show. So, without further ado, I present to you episode 10 of the We Were Raised by Wolves podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the We Were All Raised by Wolves podcast. I'm joined again by Ben today. Uh, this is Peter. Today, we're going to go over episode 10, the finale of season one of Raised by Wolves, entitled The Beginning. Welcome back, Ben. How are you doing? Thanks. Doing great. Glad to be here. That was a crazy, crazy finale. Can't wait to get into it. Yeah, we, we were talking right before we began the episode that this kind of episode defeats podcasting. It, it's such <laughs> a strange episode with such a bizarre entry point and a bizarre ending point. But I know we're going we're gonna to do a good job and do our, our best here. Yeah, not dissatisfied, though. Definitely not. And I've noticed there were a few people on the internet who seemed to say, like, we were promised answers and we didn't get them. And I kept thinking, like, we got some answers, definitely. I mean, we, I, that's kind of shocking to me that people were expecting a lot of answers. Like, I was expecting some, but definitely not all. Like, I, of course, they're, if, if they plan on doing a second season, I'm not, I'm not surprised that we didn't get everything. I thought we got a healthy yeah. amount personally. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's dive into listener emails. Uh, the first email we have here is from Tammy. Tammy wrote that she is really enjoying the podcast, working our way through it, still on show episode five. So thanks, Tammy. Not, yeah, thanks a lot for the kind words, Tammy. Uh, still on show episode five. So hopefully by the time she's watched it mm -hmm. all, she can come back to this episode and hear her question being answered. But yes, I'd wondered if mother and father's creator and Otho were the same person because their voices seemed to sound highly identical. There's some quality to the voices that seemed similar, but I think they're done by different actors. So the similarity seems to be a coincidence. They are different actors. And to me, they sound different. Hmm. <laughs> uh... Yeah, they do. They, they do sound a little different. I guess maybe what Tammy was hearing was the digitization of Otho's voice in that uh, Dark Souls box helmet. Sure, yeah. Potentially. But I think uh, by the time Tammy gets to the end of the season, she's going to have way more questions than she has now at season five. The sweet summer child has a long way to go. Uh, the next question we have is from Daniel. Daniel asks, is it possible that androids can evolve in this world if humans can devolve? I think that's a really good question. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think androids can definitely evolve, and I think that's kind of where they're going because there's there's been a lot of hints throughout the series that that could happen. And just watching it, I I mentioned this in my video, but um, just watching it, I think uh, both mother and father specifically have a lot of human traits or a lot of uh, traits that kind of go beyond their programming. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there were some. Um, evolution with the androids. Yeah, I agree with that. 
I think the devolving storyline that was teased in this episode, there's probably more to it. Yeah, but I, yeah. I totally agree. That <laughs> I think that's safe on the to Android say. side. On the Android side, you're you're totally right. They definitely can evolve. And then the last email we got this week is from someone uh, whose name is Travis Travis. I, I guess that potentially oh. is their real name, which would be a funny coincidence given the main character, the main actor's name and plays Marcus is Travis Fimmel. Huh. Anyway, Travis asks, is it possible that they're in the tropical area of the planet at the end of the episode? And I think what Travis is referring to is the end of this episode 10 finale. My assumption was yes, that I thought that was what where they had landed. How about you, Ben? Yeah, that was that was my assumption as well. We just got like a real quick glance at it. But yeah, that was definitely my assumption. I think that was to be taken literally for sure. Well, thanks to everyone who's written in. Feel free to write in again. Uh, the email is we were raised by wolves at protonmail.com. You'll find it in the show notes along with a way to keep track of the show and a link to the video that Ben mentioned, which was a great video on YouTube. That, thanks. Uh, and you want to describe it a little bit, Ben? Just the video, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, um, sure. It was, I didn't want to go like with this one, at least I didn't want to go super deep into so much so many details and so much lore of the show that's what the podcast is for but i just wanted to do like a quick kind of overall grasp of the show and it's it was it was kind of non-spoilery like i I get into very light spoilers but i wanted to make a video for people who were thinking about watching it um, and kind of highlighting the little aspects that make it a good sci-fi and it was a very well done video and I can't recommend the video and Ben's uh, YouTube channel enough. So Thanks. check that out. Again, the link will be in the uh, show notes. So let's dive into the finale of season one of Raised by Wolves yes. entitled The Beginning. <laughs> and as is tradition, at least tradition as of the last episode of the podcast, I'd like to start this episode with four elements from this episode out of context. <laughs> the first of these is domestic squabbles. The second is Serpent Armed Hunter, which <laughs> I thought was pretty clever. Yeah. Uh, the, the third is Reverse Pregnancy. And the fourth is Adam and Eve in the Garden. The fourth one to me, and since, uh, because we had Travis, Travis's email uh, earlier mentioning the end of the episode, the fourth one to me is particularly resonant because here we are, we're getting major Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden vibes. We have Mother who is deceived by a serpent and unleashed some evil into the world it it did really Mm -hmm. i felt we'd mentioned adam and eve in some previous episodes of the podcast but i really felt it acutely at the end of this one yeah very very heavy very thick themes (laughs) very thick biblical themes we start way 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 on the opposite side of the planet where all of our cast are with marcus all alone crawling through what appears to be the same desert environment that he got his beat down from lucius in the imagery is kind of fuzzy. He sees some bizarre fluctuating image in the sky. It looks pretty weird. And he's praying to Sol, asking for Sol to show him his way. Show, show me your way. I am your one true king. And you get that sense, again, that someone is bargaining with a higher power for something. And lo and behold, the lander speeds across and he thanks Sol. He says, thank you. I'm saved. Your king is coming. And I thought to myself, for so many of these episodes, we've seen kind of we have rational explanations for things that happen that people have interpreted as some form of divine intervention. And this is yet another instance of that. It it seems to be one of the recurring storylines, I think, in the show that a lot of the stuff that we see, like when Marcus saw the church burning, he assumed that was soul. When he saw the lander fly over, he assumed it was soul. The reality is Marcus actually stopped hearing soul's voice 
right after he defied Soul's command to let her live. When yeah. he actually gave the order to father against Soul's word, that was it. Since then, he's just been lurching and seeking uh, that voice of God in his in his mind, and he's he's not getting it back. So would about you, this, do you think mm, that that's kind of like the reason why Soul, I mean, there's so many things we can go into, but do you think that's the reason why Soul stops talking to people, for lack of a better term? Soul. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked. That's a, a great question. So I think what happens is soul or the AI or the serpent or something we don't even know exists yet. The smoke monster from lost, whatever it is, <laughs> as soon as it realizes it can't get through to you, it moves on. Mm. And I was thinking about Campion, the, you, this AI sent Tally to Campion over and over and over again. And what did he do? He just dad joked Tally away. And that yeah. was it. He stopped hearing voices. He stopped seeing Tally. That was pretty much it. Someone like Sue, it would be a non-starter. If she heard a voice in her head, she'd just be like, I'm hearing things. I'm acting irrationally. I'm losing my mind. No. And it would just be shut down. So it's almost like you have to be receptive to hear it in the first place. That's a good point. For it to, to arrive, which, you know, we're going to do a lot of biblical, biblical uh, analogies and symbolism. This, this entire story is full of it. But in terms of biblical analogies uh, on this point, there's a lot of biblical authority that you are susceptible to Satan's influence when you are weak, when you are longing, when you are frail. And if you look at the different people and entities and androids who have been susceptible to whatever it is that's speaking to them, they've all suffered some kind of trauma. Mother has lost a bunch of kids. Paul obviously has seen his arc explode. Marcus was a child soldier who was deeply, deeply traumatized. And only those folks are the ones who are, are whose soul or whatever that AI can tune into their frequency. I don't know I will, if you caught that, Ben, or what your, your thoughts were. I didn't catch that. That's a good point. Paul also now probably more susceptible if, if we're going with that logic because he now knows the truth about his parents. So that's more of a reason to uh, maybe, you know, be susceptible to soul or to be uh, more obedient um we don't really get a last like shot um with paul i don't really i don't know what happened to him because we after he you know took a shot at uh was it sue sue yeah after he took a shot at her we we don't see him in the last in the last the last the, like the ending shot of those characters um remember it mm -hmm. pulls up to campion and it, and it looks like they're the director's kind of grooming him to be a leader. They're all looking at him and it's like, oh, it's time for me to take up the mantle. At least that was the feeling that yeah. I got from that. But like, I, you don't see Paul there at all. I'm like, did he just run away? Did I miss something? Yeah, it's not clear. And, and maybe to your point, if Paul is more susceptible now than ever to Saul or whatever's influence, we'll call it Saul just for the sake of yeah, because we don't know simplicity. Yeah, or or it'll be like Saul slash AI slash alien slash yeah. weird. Yeah, if Paul is more susceptible to Saul's influence now than he ever has been, it's possible that he's gone and he might be just painting himself in. I mean, uh, he told him the truth. I, you know, mm -hmm. so like he could he could look at that as well. This person, whoever he may be, like maybe he was doubting his faith for a while, but then was like, oh, he told me the truth about my parents so I can trust him now. I don't mm -hmm. know. That's taking a leap, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely see. We'll get to we'll get to Paul's actions a little bit uh, later as well. So back on Kepler 22B with Marcus, it seems like he's totally gone. His face is looking very vascular, I, I must say. <laughs> yeah. And he just kind of is stumbling through the desert. We cut to mother and the crew in the lander. Mother is humming and father quickly confirms what everyone feels, which is please stop humming. 
And she's humming a certain tone that I think I'll mention a little bit later. And they're approaching the place that mother wants to give birth. There's definitely a sense of unease inside the lander, at least among everyone except mother and Paul. Mother promises them they're going to go to the tropical zone as soon as the delivery is done. But it seems like Paul and mother are the only two who are so at ease with what's happening. They're, they seem almost overwhelmed with faith that it's going to work out, even when they see there's a bunch of those Kepler creatures on the landing site. They're still just so peaceful. So the beasts are scared away by the lander and father decides to land near a pit and he says to keep them from freezing, which I thought was kind of a throwaway line, but a little bit interesting because it hadn't been made clear, at least not, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that the pits generate or emit some kind of heat, but obviously they're, they're a clear path to the Earth's, I'm sorry, to Kepler's molten core. So it makes sense that they'd want to stay near a hole although it's pretty dangerous. And Sue says we probably shouldn't camp right by the hole, which I think is good parenting uh, for a change in this in the show. Yeah. So they come out, weapons drawn, and as they make their way over to an area where there's a cave, mother says, this, is, this area is good. This is it. And it occurred to me, is anyone thinking, at, is anyone at all in this group thinking rationally at this point? Is, is anyone thinking, <laughs> why are we doing, why did we fly the lander to a random unexplored place because the android just like sensed it. Like it, it doesn't seem to make any sense under uh, sort of hyper-rational atheist view or the Mithraic worldview that they would just be like, oh, okay, mother says we should fly to this random place in the middle of nowhere so she can give birth to her potential demon baby. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I but guess they, go they with it. just like didn't have a, didn't have any other plan. So they're like, oh, well, this is, this might is someone's well. plan. Might as well. <laughs> Yeah, there was nothing to watch on TV today, so we might as well go on this adventure. <laughs> yeah. So they get to the cave, and we get this scene where Campion is is definitely trying to bond with his mother, impressing her with his uh, sling skills, and she basically tells him, not now, she's got to recharge. Campion asks if the baby's going to fly, and of course all of us who've seen the episode are thinking like, dude, if you only knew, if you only knew, and it is a little bit of foreshadowing because when we hear him ask that question, we're thinking about, will the baby fly like you, like a necromancer? But in reality, it obviously flies very differently. Um, Creepy. Sue and mother have a little bit of a quick exchange where mother is inquiring about why Campion seems off. And Sue explains humans get jealous sometimes and it can cloud their better judgment. Here, I began thinking to myself, you know, mother has been in some ways jealous from the beginning. We saw her jealousy, I think, most clearly in the conversation with Tempest, where she would seem jealous of humans being able to create life and her only being able to take it. And I think this is a clue, what Sue says. Humans get jealous sometimes and it can cloud their better judgment. It's clear that mother's judgment has been clouded majorly. And I think jealousy of Tempest and jealousy of mm. humans and jealousy of even her own creator kind of tie into that clouded judgment. That's a great catch. I didn't even think about that. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> if you think yeah. about it. It's, it's, it was a little bit, because I think if the writer of this, uh, of this program, Aaron Guzikowski, he wrote the script for the, sh the movie Prisoners, which is a very- I love that movie. movie. It's such a good movie. I, so I really good. recommend it. Yeah. But almost every word of dialogue in the movie is basically like serves a purpose. Like there's no wasted, It's a, he's a very lean writer if you go by Prisoners. I'm not familiar with too much of his other, other stuff. I don't think anything achieved as, as high prominence. But if you kind of are familiar with that and familiar with that sort of writing style, I don't think there's much that's being said here that doesn't serve a purpose. So that jealousy line, it seemed like there might be something to it. Sue sticks a uh, mother with a needle that apparently can detect 
android amniotic fluid. She notices that her temperature has gone way up and she's really, really shocked by the cellular growth of the baby, which is off the charts and says, you're gonna have one badass baby. Again, here's a moment where I thought to myself, okay, you have this needle and you have this thing. You, none of you guys have like an ultrasound gun or a sonar type X-ray vision so you could take a peek at what's growing inside her. All this technology, but obviously, it's it's all good. That uh, might be a little too convenient. Yeah, it probably would be a little too convenient. The episode would have ended in about a third of the time. Meanwhile, the kids are having a conversation. Hunter has, I think, he's done a good job of redeeming himself given previous episodes. I think he's he's definitely been replaced by Paul as the most hated villain of the show, but we'll, we'll get to that later. But <laughs> Hunter is telling them, I think the pregnancy is ordained by soul and the baby has to be divine. He tells a story about the hot pentagonal butthole thing sparing his arm. And then Holly busts out the tooth and they, they both say, see, this is all part of the thing. And, and Hunter says, we're meant to witness that birth and write the new scriptures, which I thought was really interesting too, because you would imagine if they were back on earth and someone said that like, hey, I'm gonna write the new scriptures of the book of Saul, it, that would be heresy. Right. But even yeah. in Hunter's mind, it's like all bets are off. Like we are in just terra incognita at this point. Like we have no idea what's happening. So, yeah, new scriptures. Sure. Why not? A little bit later in the conversation, they both acknowledge maybe Saul is working through mother. Now, at this moment, I, I began thinking to myself, it's funny that Hunter has gone totally from thinking that mother and father are atheist demon machines that just doesn't even treat them as as sentient he, he ignores me yeah. treats them as like robots and, where did and he, his and change he, of heart come from all of a sudden totally totally <laughs> and you know what he they still are atheists right like he knows that there's they still are atheistic yeah. robots to him but now he's gone 180 degrees and he basically thinks that mother is holy mother is some kind of because of divine the way, plan do you think that's because of the way he she's been acting like she's been saying things like oh we're supposed to go here i'm supposed to do this and and like you said earlier, yeah. she's just been acting very, for lack of a better term, mithraic or religious or spiritual, you know, uh, that'd yeah, be my theory. That's, I think that's a really good thought. And I think maybe Hunter is picking up on that. Maybe he's yeah. seeing something that we're not. For all we know, maybe Hunter's hearing voices himself. Not really clear about that either. But I think it's it's probably some combination of stuff. What he's witnessed, he basically at the Mithraic camp kind of realized that the the Mithraic camp that was there and the leader they had wasn't you know a real person of the faith. He probably got a bad vibe about that entirely, yeah. and all kind of worked out. But it's just such an arc to looking at these two mother and father and just not even acknowledging them to thinking that mother is basically tantamount to the Virgin Mary in, in their religion, like something divine. And Holly even goes along with it too. Holly was probably the most devout, second most devout, probably after after Hunter. So again, we have this instance of people rationalizing the events around them to fit their worldview. Yeah, it's just kind of you make the facts fit the opinion, which is hmm. frankly a theme that I think is is not just in the show, but in reality right now in a lot of parts of the the world in the country. Show is so, so full of layers. <laughs> yeah, it's layers. So just depth. layer after just a, just a big onion, right? Yeah. We then get Paul playing with a mouse. A mouse runs off and it conveniently leads him into a cave. And, you know, I got to ask Ben, is there a cultural Mithraic problem with childcare? <laughs> is there something wrong? Like even on the arc, they were just like, let's just throw the children <laughs> in a giant room that snows all the oh time. Oh my God. Yeah. And now, earlier, Paul was able to just like walk out of the cave, throw the cars into the fire, walk back in. Now he's just 
following mouse like sue get yeah, it they together don't, they don't care about child care on the mithraic they just they're just like uh eh, soul will guide you stay where i can see you they don't even say yeah. that they they don't even say stay where i can see you they just throw them yeah. in the room soul guide you peace soul like, guide you. that's yeah. well two things first uh i think my parents and might have been mithraic just based on how <laughs> i was raised because it was very much uh here's a dollar go buy a car whatever the second thing is, yeah, I think it's also the atheists who are pretty bad at child rearing because uh, they make their kids into soldiers and basically just use them as, as a fodder in the war. So there's really a deficiency yeah. in how we raise kids. But anyway, Paul is able to just wander off and follow Mouse into this extremely terrifying little nook in the rock face yeah. and makes his way down. And, you know, this is when it was very clear to me that soul whatever is like talking to marcus messing with mother controlling tally all of it's the same thing it, it is con like it created tally not because tally had any special significance or she's back to life tally fell into the hole this soul entity was able to image it or create a facsimile of it and used it to lure mother to lure father to taunt campion and it did the same with mouse so that's not a real mouse we already know it's some sort of simulation of a mouse but he's able to guide paul into this cave where he sees a pretty striking cave painting pause this scene to try to make sense of what i was seeing and there was a very big snake that seemed to be moving so that was a really cool painting just moving on the wall yeah there or he was hallucinating potentially as well. <laughs> Some really or. cool ink and moves around. Very cool ink. Very cool ink or very cool drugs. Either, One either of the, the two. two. And there appears to be what looks like a spacecraft of some kind with nine circles, like eggs or who knows what, but there are nine. And two entities in the driver's seat flying into space. And there's a planet in the top right that I'm... I would, I'm 100% sure is Earth. It's a, it's a drawing of Earth. You could just barely make out the continents. For one or two frames of the show, you could make out about eight planets. So there might be a missing uh, planet, but I won't blame them for omitting Pluto. The, its planetary status has been up in the air for some time, so no big deal. But it's, it's not clear if this is totally intentional to depict Earth that way, or maybe it's Kepler that looks that way. But there's something going on that suggests that this has happened before and happening again, it, kind of a cycle. I actually interpreted that differently. And I understand like where people are going with this, but when I saw it, I didn't, I didn't buy the whole, like when you, when you first see that you think, Oh, it's a cave painting. It's been here for like, who knows how long to me, mm -hmm. I, that could have been, that could have been drawn right after they got there, you know? And maybe that was like, the the intention or soul's intention or whoever's intention or a warning you know by the by the neanderthal man later like that mm -hmm. there there's so many things that could have been and i don't i don't necessarily buy that that's been there forever you know even though that's <clears throat> kind of the implication but it's only implied because we're used to cave paintings um, right. being something that's before our time but that could have been mm -hmm. drawn yesterday for all we know <laughs> you know and yeah. if that's the case then like it's not that weird but well, well, folks, now you know who between Ben and I is the skeptic and who is the idealist. <laughs> because I was just like, wow, cave paintings. They must have been painted a million years ago. There's a site, an eternal cycle here. <laughs> and Ben's like, yeah, I mean, it could have been a, that that Keplerian guy just for some extra time like yesterday. So a very, very good, very, very good point. Paul hears voices, closes his eyes, and you could tell that he's tuned in. He's really like tuning into whatever yeah. soul is telling him. 
We get a really sweet moment between Campion and father. I think pretty much every moment with father, other than his moments with mother, are incredibly sweet moments. Both of them have become warriors. They, they recognize that in each other. And I think that is massive, massive foreshadowing, massive. I, I think there might be a lot more to father than we might know. And I'll explain why a little bit later, but I think father is going to last to the end of the end of the series, which is my prerequisite for continuing oh, to watch the so. show. I hope so. <laughs> but there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of fighting in the future. I think depending on how ambitious the story gets, it could even mean that father and Campion may be warriors against each other. Who knows? But I thought it was a very, very sweet scene. We then get the first of the domestic squabbles that we mentioned earlier. Father is telling mother he finds it oddly disturbing how she got pregnant. She just turns that rationality right back on, though. Did you guys notice that? She's She's been very irrational, erratic, emotional uh, for a lot of the time. But when father is the one who acts a little bit emotional or melodramatic, mother is yeah. cool as ice. Yeah. She's like, I, yes, we made it to create a new life for him. I don't see why that's an issue. You know what I mean? It's just such a funny thing because it's like she's at her most hyper-rational when she's interacting with father. And in almost all other cases, that rationality is is switched off. So when it's her, you know, wants and desires and objectives, then it's then it's all faith and hope and love, right? But yeah. when when she feels slightly at ease or threatened in any way, or when her when her uh actions are threatened, then immediately she uses rationality as a defense. That's really interesting. Very 100%. telling. <laughs> Very yeah. telling. Very telling. And I mean, it, you could say the same occurs in <clears throat> any number of actual relationships between actual human beings on actual earth in this actual reality. So I, I just, I love the ability the, of the show to actually use these things that are at least think back. I know it's been a while, but think back to the first five minutes of this show. These two things were the most alien things I'd seen since, you know, 70s sci-fi type movie like that weird helmets and the way they talked and their stilted dialogue. But these two very alien and foreign entities have become fantastic prisms through which to see not just how like humanity emerges, but how humans interact and the dynamics they use to defend themselves and they argue. So I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, same. But yeah, mother is pretty cold at this point. She basically says, yes, well, here's what I did. Here's how I got pregnant. I accessed the pods. I, I discovered I can access my memory files. Again, father is like, oh, I would have... I would have loved to do that. I love to replay the memories that we have, and it would be cool to do it in a basically a holodex format. That would be that would be pretty dope. But mother kind of cuts him off and says, "Yeah, sure, but like you wouldn't have been. A I'm not talking about those memories, and you wouldn't have been able to access the memories that I'm talking about because our creator archived them for me and not you." Which father, you could tell he's a little bit hurt by. Then mother describes the information exchange, and I thought this definitely has to win some award for possibly the most hilarious euphemism for sex I've ever heard. <laughs> when mother says, information was downloaded into my drive. <laughs> all right. Oh, it was downloaded, all right. All right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, father is clearly a little bit disturbed by this. And, and mother, again, being extremely rational, just says, I haven't even shared the most upsetting part yet. And I mean, <laughs> you're like, oh, like you, you, you just saw how much harm you caused. And you're like, but wait, there's more. There's more. <laughs> and she shares the, the more with father and says the real mission wasn't Campion and the rest of the Gen 1s. And I love how they talk about those kids like iPods or, or whatever, like is just kind of hilarious. It's not, it wasn't Campion and the rest of the Gen 1s. 
that that was the way to prepare us for the real mission. The baby is the real mission. And for a split second, you see father almost kind of accept that like maybe she's right, yeah. but he immediately, immediately snaps out of it and basically tells her like, look, the mission isn't what the creator or campion or whatever actually put into you or told us or what's in her head. The mission is for us to determine, which is consistent with sort of Sue's worldview and the atheistic worldview. Like this doesn't have to do with soul or a creator. It's really what we do. And mother dismisses that as childish and they have a heats up and she accuses father of, of engaging in human melodrama, which again, kind of ironic given that it's mother who has really been, you could say, engaging in human melodrama. She's fantasizing about being a mother, having a baby, being a creator. You know what I mean? And father's melodrama has been, I would say, a little bit less and also less consequential. Yeah, that's um, a good point. So father seems to be very upset about this. He says that basically mother is not concerned with his well-being and he runs off. I was kind of bummed because I, I remember that he had told or promised Campion that he wouldn't run away again. And now he was. Yeah. He literally uh, like the last scene <laughs> yeah, like, said that he wasn't going to go anywhere. He's like, he was like, don't ever do that again. Don't ever leave again. And yes. he leaves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I guess uh, broken promises run in a lot of families. Yeah. Kebby chases him down and he tries to tell him to stay. And he tells Campion, look, I've reached a point of intolerance with mother and walks off. We flash back to Marcus in the wilderness. This did have a little bit of, and probably I'm reaching here, but a little bit of the John the Baptist type vibe, just sort of a person all alone, subsisting in the desert somehow, seeing visions, calling for divine guidance. And he's continuing to walk around. It's dark one moment. It's like light. In another scene, it's day. He's in the desert. He's in front of rocks. It's not clear what's real and what, what's in his mind. And he comes upon what appears to be Hunter from behind, but Hunter's arm appears to be some sort of serpent. Yeah, that was weird. Very <laughs> weird. Marcus says he needs to find his kingdom. He demands that Hunter answer him. And he asks him, like, you want to die? So obviously some part of Marcus is still intact. And Hunter, the vision of Hunter, tells Marcus that Soul never actually saved Hunter. It's only Marcus who's his one true son. Hmm. And the, the serpent arm that is attached to Hunter, bites Hunter right on the shoulder, which reminded me actually of the fact that when OG simulated OG Campion was hooking up with Mother, at the very end, when Mother was being tortured in the real world or you know attacked in the real world, OG Campion bit her in the shoulder really hard. It's like a, a serpent strike. Hmm. So you Definitely have- I didn't catch that. Yeah, you have the OG Campion in the simulation biting Mother in the shoulder like a snake. Then you have the serpent arm of Hunter biting Hunter in the shoulder like a snake, which it was. So, you know, just kind of an interesting parallel. And, and I think the show is really tends to reveal more and more of its layers on uh, re reviewing and, and who knows what else we probably missed. Marcus makes his way to a big, one of those big serpent skulls. So he gets closer and obviously there's some more foreshadowing here and he hears a hiss, a hiss sound. We then cut to Campion and Paul and Paul gives Campion the mouse. He wants him to take care of him. He says he's working on a surprise for mother. The mouse seems pretty docile, pretty, pretty normal to me. And Paul says something like, see, he's not evil. He's, he's fine, which totally makes sense. And we are getting a little bit of like the Marcus descent into madness, enlightenment, whatever here with, with now Paul, like Marcus, like his 
dad engaging in a whole set of activities at the direction of voices he hears in his head. Yeah. So obviously a sign that this is going to get more, more intense. Father is trying to figure out, making one last effort to figure out the situation. He's using some dolls to establish like a logic tree. And after some time, he realizes that there's only one answer to the conundrum he has. He wants to be with the children, but he can't be without the children unless mother is there and mother causes him harm. And he picks up the little head, which is a little gold head rock that represents mother. And he realizes, I think, in that moment, the only way to, to solve this is to destroy mother, which isn't going to happen. He throws the rock in disgust and he sits down looking kind of dejected until he looks at the little rock that's, I think, his head, this little kind of like uh, dark rock. And I think he realized at that moment that, hey, the solution, another solution is I could eternal sunshine myself. I could just wipe all those memories. Great. <laughs> and I think before he even has a chance to smile jubilantly, he hears some noises and starts investigating the noises that he hears. So um, I'm yet again skeptical about the memories. So earlier you said that mother mother was talking to father and said that the the OG Campion memories were for her and they were given only to her, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm very skeptical of that because that for her to be the only one that remembers that, like her whole programming and her whole uh, every decision she she's made is because of that and and then being you know, deceived from that, it, it makes me think that it's possible. I'm not saying this is a definite hit by any stretch, but I think it's possible that maybe some of her memories were fabricated. Like, I wonder if, if we ever got like a father backstory, if the two memories would, would coincide and if they would be consistent or if there'd be inconsistencies within both stories. Did you ever see a true detective? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a season one. Um, yeah. There's a great, True Detective is an amazing series, but like each season is its own kind of story. You don't really need to, like if you want to jump in in season two, like that's its own kind of mini series, follows the same theme. Like if you want to jump into season, season two sucks, don't do that. Um, <laughs> but season three is really good if you haven't seen that. And it's like each, they, each season like has its own kind of theme, but like it's completely different characters, completely different story. But there's a scene in season, uh, season one where the whole, there's a, they kind of, have like a different structure in terms of timeline so like you'll see one timeline and then another timeline and see how they coincide but eventually it gets to the point in season one where i think it's in the middle where um they the story that they're telling like they tell a story and then you see it through like a flashback mm -hmm. but there comes to a point where they start to tell a story and it doesn't line up with the flashback so you start to realize that oh they're lying you know and so i it makes me wonder I, I kind of just thought of that because it makes me wonder, I wonder if like they're going to pull that kind of thing where you see father's backstory and it's not at all what we saw. Or maybe there's some kind of fabricated like memory. I don't know. It just made mm -hmm. me think that the fact that she's so driven from this one thing and she's got like, you know, a crush on OG Campion and her creator mm -hmm. and the fact that she's not willing to share her memories with anyone. Again, not saying this is definite. It could just be that she didn't want to share it because... You know, she has a little crush and there's some shame there, but I don't know, man. I'm kind of, I'm kind of skeptical about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and there's almost like a Rashomon type quality here when you think about it. And, and for those who don't know, it's a really famous, really old Japanese movie, I think from 1950, where something happens and the townsfolk comes, come together to figure out what exactly happened. And then the different people who are all like witnesses in some way, tell their version of the same story. So the mm. bandit tells a story. The samurai tells a story. The woodcutter tells a story. The woman, the wife tells a story. And you as the viewer have to kind of triangulate 
among all the different accounts and all the different memories, what, what actually happened? Like what exactly did happen? Because memory is obviously imperfect. And because they think it's corruptible in humans, it's probably corruptible in the androids. And I, I think, I think you're definitely onto something. I could be way that. off. That was just uh, something that I kind of noticed. And I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. It was just a little feeling, but we'll see. I definitely think there's something to that. And it ties to one of the theories that I have that I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later right. as well, but you're, I think you're onto something. So meanwhile, Sue confronts Campion or comes up to Campion who's holding mouse. She asks, why do you have him? Again, this is very bad childcare. Paul, Paul has slipped, uh, slipped away multiple times now. Sue is really showing the world that she's not his real mom. I think that's <laughs> probably how Paul figured it out. Reminds anyway. me of the, you ever see The Walking Dead? Mm, kind of reminds yeah. me of The Walking Dead where, oh, yeah. <laughs> where Lori's always like, where's my kid? Oh, or oh, yeah. she's always pawning her child off. Only the yeah, difference yeah. is that's actually her real son. Sorry. That's actually her real son. Yeah, there, I think there, it's funny. It's kind of like a trope that I guess gets used in a bunch of shows. Yeah, I, what's up with I'll that? never forget Lost, you know, Walt. Walt. Yeah, Walt was always Where'd going Walt, off like, with Locke, man. you know, doing his own thing. Like I, I have a little niece and a little nephew, and they definitely they definitely are fast, but there's never a moment where I'm where anyone's like, hey, where'd they go? It's been a while. <laughs> like, just... What happened? Especially not if we were in some sort of dangerous situation full of zombies or more, smoke monster more island. Or, to watch prisoners. Yeah. That, oh, whatever. whatever <laughs> watch your kids. Go. Yeah, watch Keep your kids, guys. Kids. Uh, don't so, wander off or the others will take you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Sue catches up to Paul and she sees that he's got the fuel cell for the landers. He looks like he's going to throw them into the pit. She stops him and Paul basically oh, tells right. her, I hear soul, not in my ears, but from inside my head. Mm. And he shares with Sue this knowledge that he thinks that they can't go to the tropical zone because it's not safe for the baby. Saul told him so. So I think mm. that has really important implications given that the baby does end up in what looks like potentially the tropical zone at the end of the episode. I think there are going to be implications. There's something about the android snake baby and its compatibility with the tropical zone Saul didn't want it to go to the tropical zone yet. I think that's where it's, it ends up. So mm, I wonder why. this really leaves a lot of possibilities open. It could be that Saul knows there are other animals or organisms or aliens for all we know in the tropical zone that can harm the baby. Yeah, it could be anything. It could be anything at all. It could be inhospitable for one reason or another. But Paul, uh, Paul is really trying to reason with Sue and he says, look, Saul told me this stuff and he brought Mouse back to me to show me his love. And Sue tries to reason with him and she tells him point blank, like, look, Saul isn't real. Your father didn't hear Saul's voice. He went insane and, and he, he was sick inside. It's actually a really sweet moment. Although part of me was like, well, Sue, how are you gonna explain Mouse? Like that one is a little bit, that's a little bit weird. Like the voice is fine, but he's holding a thing you could touch that fell down a hole. I guess in her mind, she probably thinks like it just ran away from him and he, he got it back. But you know, a little bit, a little bit uh, treacherous situation she's, she's put in. Mother is in her weird recharge mode, sleep pose, and she gets out and walks all the way to the very edge of the pit. And she asks him stuff that you definitely don't expect to hear from an Android. First off, We've known since the beginning, there has to be some sort of link between the pits and the snakes. Yeah. In fact, if you remember, I think it might've been the second episode or maybe even the very first episode when father was climbing down into the pit and he grabs something off the side of the pit and tosses it, it's a snake skin. So there's probably yeah. other such things elsewhere. So there's always some kind of link to, between the two. Anyway, mother's there, she's at the very edge of the pit and it almost is like she's praying 
to soul. She's really asking, what am I to do with this child? What is its purpose? Why can't you make me understand? You've, and she says this line, you've done the improbable, maybe impossible things before. Why not now? And again, another comparison to uh, Christian theology, God, of course, with God, all things are possible. God can achieve the impossible. So you have an Android who's basically praying yeah. in a way that you'd expect perhaps some St. Mary to have prayed after she knew that she was pregnant with some sort of divine child, right? It's it, These comparisons are analogs, these metaphors, these, these different sort of links are more and more compelling as we go deeper into the show. That's probably not the best way to put it, but I think the, the links between theology and fairy tales and Greek legends and all sorts of myths are becoming so obvious that you can't get through like a few pieces of, you know, minutes of the episode without like finding just tons. Yeah. Yeah. So she's on the precipice of this pit and just waiting for something. I'm not sure what she expects, but one of these Keplerian humanoids creeps up on her from behind and they seem to be wielding some sort of tool or hammer, but mother is really fast. She takes out its heart extremely quickly and powerfully. And it's kind of a reminder to me, at least, or served as a reminder to me that this isn't just, you know, a pregnant woman. This is still a necromancer who is still extremely powerful against other biological humanoid forms. Like yeah. she's still probably weighs like 700 pounds, like something massive. So very, very uh, strong. There's a moment where father arrives. She, I, th I, I think she knew or saw that it was father later on. Father springs up on her and, it, and she thinks it's Campion. But father comes over and he unmasks it. She tells him, don't worry, I, I killed it right away. They unmask it. And it looks like another entity from the uh, Ridley Scott universe. It looks like the engineer from the Alien movies and Prometheus. So definitely reusing assets. Not No complaints about it, but it's just kind of funny to see so many of his assets in this universe, in this story. But it looks humanoid. It, it has a face that looks vaguely humanoid. And father speculates that maybe these creatures are evolving, but is surprised that we haven't found more. And he wonders this while mother wonders, like, why did it even try to kill me? This was a really good question. Right. I think we now understand that yeah, we whatever know <laughs> yeah, we now we know now we know better. But I think we also understand that whatever this Keplerian was, it represented like a, a good force, like what we would probably associate more with like good. Um, and it was probably trying to stop this snake from coming into creation or realize that this android mother was a threat. I think this is also the same entity that left the cards for mother to discover, hoping that mother would like learn from them. But Paul serving doing Stoll's bidding burned him before mother could ever see him. But I think this Keplerian was trying to do good at every step of the way. I might on rewatch try to see like how it interacted with all of them in the very early episodes. Yeah, I definitely got some Promethean vibes too. Like I know you said that earlier. Yeah, definitely got it later. But honestly, that was the first thing I thought when I when he took the mask off and we mm -hmm. finally saw what was behind it. I was like, uh, for a second, I thought, oh, maybe that's supposed to be what that is. Like the thing from prometheus where like it came to earth and like started everything i hope yeah. that's not what it is <laughs> i really hope not i really hope not either mm -hmm. and i i take some solace in knowing that the showrunner creator writer aaron guzikowski had this fleshed out a while ago and i think he went to ridley scott's production company not expecting them to have any interest and then they were like yeah we're interested and then ridley scott was like yeah and i want to direct the first two episodes and i think he was like sure so I don't, I think there's probably a lot of top layer that's going to be like the Ridley Scott Prometheus universe, like a lot of the 
aesthetics. I'm sure the design people are probably his people and stuff, but I think the actual story is going to be outside of that universe totally because it would be a little bit cheesy uh, cop out, right? Yeah. So father uh, looks into the bag of the Keplerian. He finds a Neanderthal skull. Mother kind of quickly surmises the Mithraic must have brought it, but father takes a chunk out of it, eats it to carbon date and determine its origin, which is a really cool skill. Yeah. And he's able to determine that it's uh, it's from there. It's from Kepler 22b. And he says that it's not that the creatures are evolving, they're devolving, which I think he means to say they're going backwards genetically and becoming more genetically like simple. So does that mean that the Keplerians that we've seen, the ones that are on all fours, does that mean those are devolving humans or degrading humans? Yeah, so exactly. They've, so they've eaten human then. <laughs> Or humanoid, yes. if you oh, will. Cannibalism should have been the fourth uh, out-of-context clue. <laughs> Darn it. Because I thought of yeah. that, and I'm like, you know, that's not that big of a deal, which is funny that we're saying that, but it's because just because like they're, they've digressed so far from human, but plus we don't even know if they ever were per se human, but mm-hmm. it's still something I think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Father acknowledges what we all have acknowledged since in pretty much the first episode, which the planet has a history that they are dangerously ignorant of. We yeah. all could have told you that, yeah. right? I thought it and, and he said it right after I thought it. Man, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know Campion's going to be like so preachy now about his veganism. Like, oh, big time. Geez, big like, time. Well, oh, he's going to be the most... I ins- never did anything. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> he's going to be the most insufferable vegan on this planet <laughs> for sure undoubtedly father father acknowledges that there's something wrong with his place but mother doesn't seem to care she thinks she's stronger there so they take the body away and bury it given what they've been eating they didn't want the kids to know what what that was father assures mother that he won't tell the kids anything because he's going to have hunter erase his memory mm. and i was says, wondering when that was going to come up like him actually saying yes to hunter to like screw yeah. up his programming and stuff yeah, well, I think Hunter has earned his trust given what he did to bring him back. Father says that, look, it, it'll be better this time because I don't expect that you'll have to deal with my mel- melodrama because I, I won't be likely to mimic human love for you. The version of you won't cause the same feelings as 12 years ago. Again, not that dissimilar from many r- relationships that obviously happen in the real world. Mother says that she uh, she declares, I'm not your enemy. And I thought this was really, again, more foreshadowing. I think there may come a time that they uh, will be enemies. And if you imagine Mother is the Eve in this story, there's definitely an initial feeling by Adam and Father that they've been betrayed, right? Yeah, for sure. So there's a, a commonality there as well. Mother starts hearing something that father can't hear. And I think the tune that she was hearing, that short just whistle, it sounded a little bit like her hum in the beginning, which I, I, I went back and listened to it again. And it does sound similar, but not entirely sure. Mother attributes that to her auditory sensors being keyed up due to her pregnancy, I guess. And father turns around and mother is gone. So another person in the family just sort of bouncing. She uh, did abruptly. a bad man. Just left yeah. where he wasn't looking. <laughs> she did. Yeah, absolutely. So Sue wakes up in a hurry. She checks the amniotic fluid in the device and it, it's beeping and it shows that mother is due. She runs to wake up mother. But when she comes out of the cave, Paul has her sidearm pointed right at her. And I thought this is a really tense confrontation. I thought the actor who played Paul did a fantastic job. He yeah. says, I know what you really are. You're not my mom. She and that man killed my real parents. and They took their faces. He calls her an atheist demon. He makes Sue confess, basically. She says, I'm sorry. And he says that Sue wants to harm Mother's baby. She wants to kill it. 
which is news to us because I definitely didn't think Sue wanted that at all. But if Saul is all knowing, which Saul <clears throat> seems to be, she did want to kill the baby and she probably had that amniotic fluid thing set to alert her potentially. But hmm. It just it all seems a little bit weird like she ran into the cave mother wasn't there and only on the way out did she alert the kids and stuff so i don't know i don't know if she really wanted to harm the baby it, it seems it's unclear i don't know did you think she actually wanted to harm the baby now that you say that yeah that's a big possibility but initially no i thought that it saul telling him at that at that you know telling him that bombshell secret at that uh, specific time i thought that was more so like he needed the uh, i mean it's weird to say this but soul wanted the birth to happen so he was kind of like covering his bases you know like i can't let her get involved like if she's another rational thinking adult like i can't have her around like trying to deliver the baby because remember that was kind of the the plan because she has medical experience so she's like oh i'll help you deliver the baby or at least i believe that was the plan and so i to me i thought that was like him kind of getting rid of her so so that if if and when like the you know the inevitable snake baby shows up then yeah. she can't like blast it or try and kill it or anything so i thought uh, i thought that was more of a protective thing but i could be wrong i mean i like your theory as well either could be yeah true. yeah there could be true uh i actually like your i like your theory more though <laughs> me too so we, we then uh <laughs> We then have really tense standoff coming to a conclusion when Paul says, Saul, God, my hand, and he shoots Sue and just runs off. So really, really sad. Paul is now the villain of the show. Welcome, Paul. You've you really you reached the highest highs and now you've gone to the lowest lows. Pour one out for Paul. He was it was good while it lasted. That's that's my epilogue on Paul. So did he? Do you think he just like ran away? Because I mentioned earlier he wasn't in the that final shot. Do you think he just was like screw this? I'm gone. I think so. Hunter was the one who said, I'll get him, which I don't know if we're getting too deep into the weeds here, but when Hunter said like, I'll get him, clearly a 17 year old boy could <laughs> apprehend a 10 year old or 11 year old boy. I think in most circumstances. He's older though, presumably, yeah. Presumably he's, he's faster, bigger, et cetera. So I, I imagine Hunter would have caught him. If So if Hunter did catch him, he then let him go, right? So there was some information exchange there. If Hunter didn't catch him, I mean, Hunter is a weak wimp who's really slow for his age. Yeah. He likes, you so can which, tell he which likes is to more take likely. the easy way out. Yeah. I think he <laughs> which just is more likely? Him. You just I, think he was a lazy bum? Yeah, I think he was just like, oh, yeah, let me... Oh, he's too fast. All right, sorry. Couldn't get him. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I thought. I thought. I think I think he got away. Yeah, you're, I, I think you're probably right, but it, it's still fun to imagine that there was some <laughs> Paul Hunter conspiracy where he's like, look, Saul told me this. He also told me that you've got a small mole on your left, you know, knee area to prove like that Saul had been communicating with him. Just funny. And I know you like, stole candy when you were six years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you still exactly. think about it. Yeah, you know? exactly. We get to the climactic scene. I think one of the climactic scenes of this uh, of this episode. Mother is drawn by this humming, I'm sorry, this whistling to this cave where the this bizarre structure is. It looks like the structure she saw in her in her vision. The writer, Aaron Guzikowski, said that this structure is a birthing prison. So just wrap your mind around that. Hmm. Think back that vision. It's this weird sort of dodecahedron with yeah. some kind of creature inside it and spewing what looks like android blood. So keep that in your mind. <laughs> Mother try. gets on all fours into her feral smelling posture. She's, she's smelling everything, assessing it. <clears throat> yeah, and, and exactly, she's a wolf. And she's caught a scent that you could tell is very familiar to her. She finds the helmet of that creature that she saw in, in a vision, and she blows the dust off the helmet, and you see this weird scene of vapors coming out and going into the pit. And she removes the helmet, and she reveals what is undoubtedly a necromancer skull. 
that yeah. has completely like rotted away. It's got the distinctive gold bands and you kind of wonder what the heck is going on here. We're going to find out in a moment that that helmet isn't really a helmet. It's something that is intended to force the Android's mouth open and keep it open mm. so that the snakes can emerge from it. It turns out, or it seems like we're given a big reveal. So, you know, to all those people who think that we've got no answers, we got one crazy answer that entire weird vision we saw was used to trap necromancers who were used to breed serpents that would emerge from their mouths. That's crazy. I mean, like, how did the first, how did that necromancer get there? We don't know. We don't know. That kind of feeds uh, into more of my thinking that maybe these, you know, maybe all these, uh, maybe that one had the same or similar mm -hmm. kind of fabricated memory, you know? I don't know. Kinda it's possible. I think that. There's definitely some fabricated memory, infected memory stuff going on. I think there's also the, the idea, the maybe more far-flung idea of everything being a cycle, like just an eternally recursive cycle, like going around and around. Yeah. I all I also think it's possible that Kepler 22b was where humanity originated for reasons that don't really matter. They developed an artificial intelligence. It became evil and there was a massive conflict between the artificial intelligence and the humans. The humans were able to get the hell out of there by basically going to Earth and they allowed the artificial intelligence to slowly die and it's just been trapped on this planet forever and trying to kind of send signals or influence Earth in a way to bring humans back so it could finally escape its prison and roam the cosmos. You know, yeah, that's like another humanity, theory. you know, started, like I think you've told me this, this theory before, so like humanity started, everything that we know started on Earth um, or, or moved to Earth, but like it, it originated on Kepler, so it like... It's like a circle, like you said. So that would that would play into a lot of the biblical themes um, mm -hmm. being told again, you know, happening again. And that would also play to uh, what I was skeptical about earlier, the um, the cave paintings. Like maybe maybe those were there. Right oh, yeah. Thinking about that. Thinking twice about that now, yeah, aren't thinking you, Thinking twice. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> it might not have been the Keplerian after all. You, you know, it might have been a while ago. <laughs> might have been that Neanderthal skull for all we know. Yeah. Just saying. That's no, that's a really good theory. I like it. So we get the very climactic scene of the episode. You, I, I, I don't know about you, uh, Ben, but I definitely was getting aliens chest bust, <laughs> chest bust. Oh, yeah. I was definitely getting aliens chest buster vibes in the yeah. scene. I actually thought Mother was a goner for sure. I, I thought this was going to be the end of this awesome character. Really, I didn't think that. Oh, I thought it was just going to rip right, well, rip her in half. I, rip I right out of her stomach. <laughs> I immediately thought of the. Um, I forget the actress's name, but I immediately thought of the scene in um the the alien abortion scene in uh, uh prometheus oh god uh, the best scene in the whole movie <laughs> oh was, my god because i was and and so to me because i because i kept thinking about that scene to me like i i didn't see mother dying especially being an android yeah that's uh, you thought rationally within the ridley scott universe <laughs> right right i and just then I saw like... the snake and it all went out the window <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i i i, I gotta commend the uh visual effects here they yeah. they looked and the special effects were out of this world and amanda yeah. collins another great performance uh someone someone give her an award or something she it's she nice. is all in on this right like she is so you could tell she's all in on every second of, of this performance yeah, she's real good. she screams uh where's my baby you said so and then she's in these weird convulsions but again i, I thought to myself what, who is she screaming at? Who is she asking? Like, that's something you ask 
God, right? And right, and here right. is an android. It's just not rational as we understand rationality. And she's just totally convulsing. And as she's sitting there, craned backward with her mouth facing the sky, this lamprey, snake-like, slithery creature emerges from her mouth and just flies through the sky effortlessly with this like digital flutter. It is such a surreal scene. I mean, it's just like, so I definitely, creepy. it's so creepy. It's so surreal. The elements don't make sense as you're watching it. It's like looking at one of these paintings that just is, gives you a strange sense of dread. And the snake just shimmers back towards her and latches onto her begins sucking that delicious android milk blood mother is clearly in pain but she still tries to kind of like pet the baby i don't know if you noticed that she's like sort coddle of it a little yeah yeah kind of, coddle it kind of like uh in the beginning i got i got kind of a, a flashback from the very first episode when um you know she takes the the very the very tiny tiny newborn and like puts it to her chest and like sings to it yeah like to me i thought that was that was kind of reminiscent of that but I don't know. Yeah, that's right. And and how she, I think when she picks up Campion, right? Cause he's like, he's the one, he's of the first six, the baby that they thought was dead. Although later he of the first six would be the only one of the babies to live. But yeah, it, it is, that's a great catch. It definitely is a callback to that first, first episode. I was really glad for a second that she wasn't human when this happened. Um, Cause if, if everything you just said happened to a human I think there would be a lot of emotional and mental damage. <laughs> yes. But she, yes. But, and, and obviously, obviously she's, you know, hurt by it, but like it, it's a little different because she's a rational android. And I, I felt a little bit of relief, like, oh, thank God she's not completely traumatized. <laughs> she could still keep yeah. somewhat of a level head. Well, look, if any of our, our listeners out there have ever given birth to a lamprey snake baby, please let us know. We'd love to have you on yeah, as a guest. Absolutely. To sort of talk through the emotional issues and compare them to what we clearly see mother going through i think uh i think that'd be a really compelling kind of interview yeah we're only here to help you know yeah exactly exactly <laughs> one thing i read about the show in an interview that aaron guzikowski gave that again the writer he said that the snake that she gave birth to is wise mm. which was a very interesting way to describe it who said that he also the the showrunner aaron guzikowski oh, okay. cool and he said that he thought that this one in particular may take on some of mother's attributes. So it's mm. gonna have some abilities that perhaps its ancestors did not have. So that's a pretty tantalizing and terrifying clue because mother has got a lot, a whole lot of attributes, including basically just in terms of the matter that is inside her, it is configurable to be extremely weaponized and impervious. Yeah. So. That might make things a little bit tough on this planet later, depending on this uh, snake's agenda. Well, I mean, the second we saw it huge, I, I thought, eh, it's going to be tough for everybody. <laughs> how do yeah. You, how, do you, how do you defeat a flying snake that's gigantic? <laughs> yeah, totally. So Mother is horrified, as horrified as we are, at the baby that she gave birth to. And I think the rational part of her brain kicks in and she realizes she has been tricked. It wasn't OG Campion who got her pregnant in that beautiful virtual reality or augmented reality space. And she tells father, as soon as they're reunited, that something else put this inside me. She also warns father that this, this baby, as long as it's suckling, we're safe. But she also notices that it's getting bigger. And she begins to fear that once that baby has drained all of her milk or android blood, it will want blood blood. 
And as it happens, there is plenty of blood in the immediate vicinity, plenty of blood with the, the Mithraic uh, survivors, and, and probably plenty of blood elsewhere on the planet. So mother and father decide that they have to destroy the creature, and there's no way to just smash it or you know beat it up or shoot it. It's clearly too powerful and more powerful and more resilient than anything else that either of them have seen. It kind of has the attributes of a necromancer in some ways. So they decide to hop into the lander and drive into the center of the planet, where hopefully the core of Kepler-22b will melt uh, the baby and, and melt them and melt everything, and, and that'll be that, and it will actually save humanity. And it's interesting in this moment that their core programming, protect humanity at all costs, is what takes over and overrides everything else. The, it's, it's, it's both rational and it's both their internal prime directive in some ways. I thought the next scene with the ship, the lander rather, being flown down the pit into the core of the planet to be really beautiful. Of course, there's a lot of symbolism there, the sperm going towards the egg, which again, doesn't really bode well for their plan to destroy something. If anything, they might be giving it new life. And, and obviously, the end of the episode shows that it is alive. Uh, they are all alive, but they do fly into the core. And I think they have a very tender and, again, very human moment. A uh, moment where you can't exactly tell that Mother is sorry, per se, but you can tell that she feels sorry and that she feels like there is something special with Father. And you, when you look at Father's final memories before he's basically melting and shutting down. It is memories of the times that he had with his family, with his the closest thing to his wife, raising the kids. And it is there is something really beautiful and profound about that uh, as they both approach what they both are certain will be their end. But it isn't uh, their end. They get through the core. It's a very, again, beautiful scene, but they get through the core and they come out of the other end and they are revived, and the snake is revived, and they are in the tropical zone that all the characters have been alluding to throughout this entire pretty tantalizing season. So the last we see of the characters is mother and father hopping out of the lander before it crashes, and our good friend, Snake Baby, having gotten way, way bigger, way bigger, exploding out of the vehicle and slithering away. And that is how season one comes to an end. So. I'm not sure what season two holds, but I think they could take it in a ton of different directions. I think it could be set immediately after the events of season one. I think it could jump ahead in time 10, 20 years with different actors. You know, the kids replaced with adults. That's that's my guess about what's going to happen. I think it could focus on the story of the people or the Neanderthals or the entities or whatever, uh, or the other necromancers or any other society that are in the tropical zone. If the voice of Soul didn't want Snake Baby to be in the tropical zone, it's possible that the voice of Soul perceives an enemy or some sort of opposition or danger there. And if that's the case, it, there could very well be a society already established there that knows that this is not a safe place for, you know, and I'm using big, big air quotes here, Soul or any of Soul's agents like the Snake Baby. But I think it's fantastic the show has been renewed. It's fantastic that we're going to get a second season of this really beautiful and bizarre show. And I'm really looking forward to taking all I've learned doing this podcast through the first season and making the second season of this podcast better 
and more fun and more interesting. So with that, thank you all who have listened to season one of the We Were All Raised by Wolves podcast. I'm sure season two of the show and season two of this podcast will exceed all expectations. So thank you again. I hope everyone stays safe. I hope everyone has a great year and and does well. And I hope everyone spreads the word about the show because unique, weird, cool, hard sci-fi like this that touches on philosophy, theology, mythology, symbolism, current trends, past trends, future trends, speculative sci-fi. These things are things that I think are worth watching and worth creating more of. So spread the word to your friends and your family. Be that annoying person who tells them to watch Raised by Wolves so that we can get a third season of this cool show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Again, if you would like to get in touch, send an email to we were all raised by wolves at protonmail.com. My name is Peter, and I will be back with you when season two comes out and look forward to having more stuff to pick apart with, with all of you, uh, hopefully for a long time to come. Thanks again, everyone, and take care.